This is WKSU News. I'm Kabir Bhatia. It wasn't the Today Show, and it wasn't the Tonight Show. When it debuted 40 years ago, Late Night with David Letterman brought a new, surreal, sometimes sarcastic voice to television. And although the host was from Indianapolis, there was a distinct Cleveland influence behind the scenes. Good evening. We are about to unfold a show featuring David Letterman, a man of science who sought to create a show after his own image. When Larry Bud Melman welcomed viewers late on the evening of February 1st, 1982, it kicked off a 33-year run of what Letterman himself sometimes called Dave's TV Funhouse. Watching that night was a young man who worked in the NBC tape library but would soon begin writing for Late Night. It was the greatest job in my life. I still have dreams about it at least once a week, and now I'm a peaked old pensioner. Within a year, Steve O'Donnell would be promoted to head writer for most of the show's run. When the program was recognized with a Peabody Award in 1992, O'Donnell was singled out by name for shepherding nearly a decade of groundbreaking television. And it all started when he was growing up on West 95th Street in Cleveland. I felt that Northeast Ohio had an impact on my thinking and even a little bit on Letterman's thinking in a way, because... When I got there, the thing that was always in the back of my head was a show that had really impressed me and and filled me with excitement when I was a child. He's talking about Goulardi, the horror host who drew monster ratings with monster movies in the mid-1960s in Cleveland. They seem crude now when you look at them, but they were messing around with a late-night format, and they were irreverent, and they made, admittedly, you know, blatantly clumsy and careless little pre-tapes. I knew that Letterman and the original head writer on the show, Meryl Marco, wanted to do things like that. They wanted people to go, is that on television? Am I looking at that right now? Ernie Anderson, who portrayed Goulardi, moved to Hollywood where he became known to millions as the voice of the ABC network in the 1970s and 80s. When he appeared on Late Night in 1983, the staff prepared a series of satirical promos. (laughs) Tonight... Things you've never seen on That's Incredible. Then at nine, it's the Love Boat. Followed by a special 2020 report on wet t-shirt contests. Then, it's the Love Boat again. Followed by a recently discovered episode of The Winds of War. Another Northeast Ohio guest who O'Donnell pushed for was writer Harvey Picar. His sometimes contentious appearances on the show are exemplified by this 1987 exchange with Letterman. You enjoy coming on the show, don't you? But you come because you like being with me, don't you? I don't even know you, man. (laughs) You're not, that's not what you're supposed to say on television. And for that reason, I just thought this is where I belong. Of course, it, it, it added a little kick for me that these were Clevelanders and Northeast Ohio people. Some of those Northeast Ohio people were showbiz legends with whom Dave seemed to have a special rapport. People like Paul Newman, Bob Hope, and in this appearance from 1986, Jack Parr. I was lucky enough to see part of the special that's going to be on Saturday night. And, and the, one of the things that struck me, uh, mm-hmm. in addition to the amazing guest list that you have assembled for that show. Richard Burton is marvelous. Yeah. May I talk now? Can I ask a question? I'll just ask one question. How many questions do you t- intend to ask tonight? <laughs> well, you're, you're getting near your quarter. No, I'm licensed to ask four. Okay. Those guests could provide just as much comedy as late-night scripted desk pieces. One enduring segment began in 1985 and led to a series of four books, all edited by O'Donnell. But he's quick to share credit for the origins of the top ten list. I think there was a lot of simultaneous inspiration. My 
metaphor now, if a bunch of people are stranded on a desert island and a crate full of food washes up on shore, whose idea is it to eat the food? We were so desperate to have any kind of running extra that you could do again and again and again. The very first top 10 list was words which almost rhyme with peas. Number 10, we have heats. Number nine is rice. Number eight is moss. Also in the writer's room at that time was Matt Wickline from Willowick. I think I added it up once and it was like 1,070-something episodes. Now, I know you began as an intern at Late Night. Tell me how you then actually became a writer on the show. While I was there, my boss at the time uh, said, you know, you're kind of funny. Why don't you write some jokes and put them on Dave's desk? Because he's always hungry for opening remarks. And so, like an idiot, I did what she said. <laughs> you know, not thinking through that, like, this could get you fired really fast, you know. But I, but I did it, and he liked them. So, uh, so I kept doing that. And then, again, timing-wise, uh, about uh, uh, two months later, a bunch of the core writers who really built the show and made it what it was were leaving together to do a show with Lauren Michaels. And so there was suddenly this big hole to fill. And so uh, in that moment, I wrote a, a submission and uh, the head writer at the time, Jim Downey, um, liked it and thought, well, here's here's some caulk to fill in that hole. So <laughs> one of the early pieces that I did I remember it was the first time where Dave was like, wow, that's nice. Uh, do, do more of those. And it was a response to a viewer mail letter. And uh, the viewer mail letter was uh, some guy from Pennsylvania who was just, it was kind of a, the letter itself was funny. He was putting Dave down and saying just, you know, Dave, in the larger scheme of things on planet Earth, you're just, you know, tiny, minuscule. You don't matter. <laughs> and so... I, I did this sort of parody of a Carl Sagan Cosmos episode with the music and, and shots of the, uh, the planets and the stars. And it was all just a comparison of Dave and his celebrity and this kid in Pennsylvania and his crummy life <laughs> and, and putting that in, in, in another perspective. Now, that makes my next segue very easy because Pennsylvania is not too far from Ohio. Talk about growing up here and how that shaped your sense of humor. The sense of humor, I think, just came from all the different influences at the time. You know, there were, there, you know, just there was so much going on in comedy. But in Cleveland in particular, you know, when I was really young, um, the local comedy was, was the, the big hit. Uh, like in my house, Goulardi was king, as Goulardi would say. We were all Goulardi fans. My older brothers kept him alive. Uh, doing his bits for years to come uh you know the over day and the uh um he would play the uh, frankie yankovic song uh who stole the kishka <laughs> uh, uh over and over again and they would sing that and redo his bits and then in uh the later 60s when i was growing up we had Hulahan and big chuck so uh i watched these guys who were doing funny sketches around the monster movies at night and Apps just went to copying it myself. So uh, when I was 10 or 12, I'd borrow my dad's camera and go make my own little uh, sketch parodies that were basically uh, an attempt to do what uh, Goulardi and uh, Big Chuck did. Um, and in fact, uh, I got to meet Big Chuck once and took him uh, a couple of my movies and showed them to him. And he was very encouraging and sweet and uh, 
and uh, it was sort of a shot in, my, shot in the arm to me to think, well, maybe I should keep keep doing this and working on this. Speaking of making films, I heard that one time you were trying to find a way to animate an entire episode of Late Night back in the 80s, but in claymation. Yeah, that, that was just a disaster. Uh, <laughs> basically, it was difficult to do for the budget that we had. So rather than being able to afford you know, professionals to do all the different things necessary to make it happen. Um, you know, we got some college kids, you know, who were talented, uh, but everywhere in the, in the uh, chain there, there were little things that broke down. So it never quite materialized. Uh, but in the imagination section of it, it was a blast because we had uh, uh, fun ideas that never came to fruition. Like uh, Dave and uh, Paul Schaefer at the end of a work day, getting in a little worm car with a sort of like drill nose on it and uh, driving home, beating the freeway traffic by, by just drilling under the earth. <laughs> so there, there were just odd, strange things you could only do in animation that were a part of it. But, um, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was just beyond the uh, budget of uh, NBC. Didn't they do that later with Conan O'Brien when he was host of Late Night? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And very well. So, um, so uh, uh, I'm sure he stole it from me. In fact, I do remember at one point he was up in the office and he might have gone through my desk. Yeah. Oh, so it sounds like you have an airtight lawsuit on your hands. Absolutely. And uh, he looks like he's got some dollars. So I'm coming for him. Tell me about some of the pieces you did which made it onto the show, uh, which you worked on regularly, like the pieces with Chris Elliott. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, Chris, I did a lot of stuff with Chris, who was just fantastic and so fun to work with. Um, and, uh, yeah, we did all the guys. Uh, we did uh, the panicky guy, um, the guy under the seats, uh, the fugitive guy, the regulator. I mean, it was just like, all right, we've, we've done nine weeks of that. What We need another guy. <laughs> so we just find some other thing that, you know, was... Chris with a goofy accent. Regulator guy was just him as Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the lamest version of the Terminator. And, you know, and then Dave sitting there mocking how bad it was. Um, you know, and one of my favorite things that I did with Chris, which I think nobody would remember, but it was, it was uh, um, uh, his own talk show called Nightlight with Chris Elliott. <laughs> it was basically, he had a smaller replica of Dave's desk and guest chairs 15 feet from Dave's desk and guest chairs. <laughs> and he was just doing the exact same show. And then Dave would just interrupt it and go like, now, how is this different than what I'm doing? <laughs> well, my name is Chris Elliott, and uh, I'll be your host for the next three minutes or so. And, you know, Nightlight has been off the air for a while. We've been on a hiatus. And I'll tell you why, because, frankly, I was a little upset at a lot of reviews that came out that uh, called Nightlight a cheap ripoff rip of Late Night with David Letterman, which I, uh, I don't think is really fair. But I'm back now, and uh, I'm ready to do uh, the show, and I've sort of changed the format a little bit, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's do our top three list. Okay? Here we are, from the home office in Caliente, Nevada. Caliente, Nevada, Paul. Caliente, Nevada. Here we go. Now, Chris Elliott grew up in a showbiz family, and of course, you and Steve O'Donnell didn't. Was there some kinship among you and Dave and even Jim Downey, since you're all from the Midwest? Uh, there definitely was a, a shared sensibility there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, I felt like I walked right into, you know, heaven in a way because um, I had been at college at Ohio university 
and his morning show was on, and it literally was the show. Like in my dorm, every morning, they you know at ten thirty or whenever it came on, um, the 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 main lobby TV room was just packed. Like everybody was up and watching it, and it was just fantastic. It was a revelation, and so much of what became late night was was cooked up then, you know. And uh, so when I suddenly had the opportunity for the internship, and then was on the show, you know, it was it was a little bit like if you'd gotten that job with, you know, like if 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 uh, Big Chuck had hired me. You know, and I got to be there down at WJW and make those shows. But it was it was Dave and it was New York. And so, uh, you know, there was just uh, a familiarity already with him. And then in terms of the Midwest, yeah, I, I imagine we were all watching the same kind of, you know, midnight monster movie schlock and and the, the sense of craziness and absurdity that existed at that hour, you know, absolutely translated right to what we were doing at, uh, you know, at 1230 at night. What are your thoughts now, looking back 40 years later, on the experience of writing for Late Night? You know, the sense of gratitude I have to, to having a first job where Dave Letterman is the guy teaching you uh, comedy. I mean, I don't think there's anybody better out there uh, to learn comedy from. Uh, he, he was just, just had the, the perfect gut and the perfect sensibility of both what can get a laugh, but also what can be beautiful and absurd and, you know, needs to exist even if it doesn't get a laugh you know he was just our north star for all of that and so to be there and and you know he was a writer uh as well as a stand-up before doing the show so so he brought a writer's sensibility to editing and making all the pieces better and so uh i just felt like that was just the greatest training camp imaginable for television um and uh one of the things that i did a lot early on because i studied uh uh, editing and filmmaking stuff in college was uh, uh, pieces that needed editing. They'd send me to the editing room. But I remember I'd constantly be bringing up these pieces and think like, oh, this is great. He's going to love this, you know. And he would sit and watch something and just laugh. And I'd go, yes, it's a home run. Fantastic. He goes, oh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's long. <laughs> I think you can find 20 seconds of air in that, you know, or, you know, yeah, cut the weakest joke and uh, I think we're there. But he always was like thinking, you know, for the viewers, you know, are we hanging around enjoying ourselves? Or are we giving them like the purest, you know, delivery of laughs possible? So I feel like he, with everything he did, although it looked very relaxed and loosey goosey on the show, he put so much thought and so much effort into all of it. Um, and so that's the guy we watched and that's the guy we learned from. And I'm so grateful for that. Today, Matt Wickline lives on the West Coast. So does Steve O'Donnell, who looks back fondly at his hometown and the Midwestern sense of humor, which shaped one of the most revered television shows of all time. There's something to it. I think because it wasn't quite professional in a way. It wasn't like joke, boom, payoff, boom, Friars Club, boom, which is, has its own delights and charms, of course. But it was just a little more strange, a little more glancing, a little more surreal. I'm Kabir Bhatia, WKSU. Soldier!